Thank you everyone for joining us. On behalf of myself, Just Mohan Bajaj, Professor of Medicine at Virginia Commonwealth University and the Richmond VA in Richmond, Virginia, and my co-editor-in-chief of the Red Journal, who is Dr. Millie Long, Professor of Medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. We're delighted to have Dr. Brian Jacobson here, who is going to help us elucidate some of the very important points that in the guideline that he led, sponsored by the ACG on subepithelial lesions. Dr. Jacobson is Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard. He's also the Editor-in-Chief of our sister journal, Clinical and Translational Gastroenterology. We're so delighted to have you on board, Brian. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me today. And let's get started. So thank you for in the writing group for writing this extensive guideline for those who, who would get the chance to check it out. There's a lot of pearls in here. So Brian, there are many subepithelial lesions that are encountered during endoscopy. Which ones did you and your guidelines writing group felt needed special attention and why? First, I want to thank the uh, co-authors. This was really a, a team effort, as you know, most of these guidelines are, and particularly when we applied grade methodology, which is usually a, a more rigorous process. And so I, I'm speaking on behalf of a, a very uh, esteemed group of colleagues. I also appreciate that you referred to them as subepithelial lesions and not a, a submucosal lesion, which is, I think, an outdated moniker. Now that we know that many of these lesions are arising not just from the submucosa, in other words, a very specific layer within the GI tract wall. Um, to answer your question, I think we are most concerned with things like the GI stromal tumors and uh, neuroendocrine tumors. These are the ones, obviously, that have the, the greatest malignant potential. And um, it's interesting how many of these subepithelial lesions are, are benign and will remain benign. And so a really important part is really teasing out which are the, the potential bad actors so they can be managed differently versus the, the very large majority that you'll see that, that will be benign and not need anything in particular done. This is important. I think this distinction between submucosal and subepithelial is a very important one. And thank you for bringing that out for our readers as well. So how often are these lesions found incidentally and versus those who are symptomatic? And I th and think the guideline goes to great pains to suggest differences in approach because, you know, you do an endoscopy and you often found these lesions that you don't know what to do with. So can you break that down a little bit for our listeners? Sure. And I think the vast majority are found incidentally during endoscopy, typically an upper endoscopy, but certainly someone may find a rectal neuroendocrine tumor during a screening colonoscopy. There's been one estimate that you can find these incidentally in one out of every 300 upper endoscopies. So there's certainly things that, that every endoscopist will be coming across. The symptomatic ones are much less common, but that is often a reason that someone is referred for endoscopy in the first place. In other words, typically something like bleeding, so they may have anemia, iron deficiency, maybe overt GI bleeding as well, rarely pain or something like that. Is there a difference in approach in those who are incidental versus versus symptomatic? Yes. Yeah. Yes. One of the first branch points in, in the decision-making process in the guideline is thinking about if the person is symptomatic, if they have been bleeding from a lesion, then regardless of what the lesion is, there's a very high likelihood that it needs a resection. Whether that's going to be endoscopic or surgical would depend a bit on what, what it is, where it is that is specifically in the GI tract 
wall where it is along the GI tract and how large it is. But if someone is symptomatic from a lesion, that is a very good reason to take it out. It's unlikely that whatever caused the symptoms will then just suddenly resolve and and not become a problem again. And then the lesion is not symptomatic. In other words, it's been found incidentally uh, during an endoscopy or perhaps during cross-sectional imaging, such as a CAT scan for other reasons and a GI stromal tumor in the stomach is noted. Then, Then the workup really starts to again, try to tease apart what is the diagnosis and is this something that needs to be treated? Can it be surveyed? Can it be safely ignored? Thank you. An issue that many of our readers might face is not having ready access to EUS at that same time when they actually first diagnose this. So what is your approach regarding, according to the guidelines, to require the use of EUS rather than findings in cross-sectional imaging or regular endoscopy that would make it easier for the reader or the practicing clinician to know that, yes, this is most likely a benign lesion that does not need another added effort, expense, and uh, you know potentially a prep for another EUS procedure versus this can be done by cross-sectional imaging or versus this person's lesion would definitely require, is it well worthwhile doing another procedure at that person? Right. That's important to, as you start to think through this, the guidelines make a, a very important distinction between lipomatous and non-lipomatous lesions. And that operates under the assumption that, that endoscopists can recognize a lipoma typically exhibiting a pillow sign. In other words, you press on it with a biopsy forceps and it indents softly like your head hitting the pillow, or it may have a a yellow hue to it as a lesion under the mucosa. And because of that, those those are not lesions that, that we thought needed any further workup. Other things that we thought were important to think about was the, the old question of a bite on bite or tunneled biopsy. Can you take repeated biopsies during standard endoscopy to get at the lesion. That can work if the lesion is in the submucosa or or the deep mucosa. If it's in the muscularis propria, it's not something you're going to really get to during standard endoscopy. And when we looked, because we were using grade methodology, it really does mean you're, you're trying not to make a recommendation just based on opinion. And it's a very sparse literature that one can find really strong evidence for some of these things that we do. Many on the panel had had experience or knew of colleagues that had done biopsies of what they thought was just a simple submucosal lesion to do bite on bite, and unfortunately found that this was a vascular lesion. So we thought, given the quality of the literature that was out there supporting bite on bite, a lot of it derives from patients where an EUS was also part of the workup. And also knowing that there have been cases where bleeding has been caused, the uh, guidelines came down to say that bite on bite was not the greatest thing to do without an EUS. Now, if you're very confident you're not dealing with a vascular lesion, it's, I suppose, something you could do in the moment during an EGD, but you should know that the evidence is not great to support that in terms of getting a good yield, especially if it's an important lesion in the muscularis propria. To your question about what's the next best step, let's say you're in the stomach and you find a fairly large lesion. You're pretty sure it's going to be a GI stromal tumor based on its appearance. Maybe there is a, a 
an umbilication that you could biopsy to try to get an answer from, then you might consider just tattooing the site to help a surgeon. And if the patient had presented with symptoms anyway, you can skip with the EUS and send them directly to surgery. You wouldn't necessarily need to do more. But if it's something that's small, you're not sure what it is on EGD, an EUS is going to go a lot farther into getting a diagnosis for you than getting cross-sectional imaging. The data just doesn't support that, especially for small lesions, that CAT scans or MRIs are going to give you a good answer, particularly for these for non-lipomatous lesions. The other situation where I think endoscopists can treat something right away would be a a rectal neuroendocrine tumor. So you're doing your colonoscopy and Jazz, you may have encountered this in your career. You find a, a slightly yellow lesion in the subepithelial layers in the rectum, usually smaller than a centimeter. Those you can go ahead and do an EMR to get it out. And that'll usually give you a good answer. And they're just a, a simple band ligator and a snare will often enucleate the entire lesion. Again, this is for small rectal neuroendocrine tumors. They may not need an EUS, especially if you get it all out on pathology with clean margins. Thank you. So your flowchart is especially useful. It actually breaks all of these concepts down. Can you walk us through this? And again, specifically focusing on these inflection points where it, we already covered the symptomatic and asymptomatic, which is the first branching point. But when to send it to a colleague or someone else versus dealing with it yourself? And I think the EUS findings are also pretty clear cut here, which are maybe important for our readership. Thank you for drawing attention to the algorithm. We were particularly glad in how we did this, including the, the different labelings for the grade system at each brand point where we could show you as you're thinking about it, just how confident you should be in whatever the recommendations were, because you'll probably notice many are conditional recommendations based on low quality or very low quality evidence. Probably the, the most important branch points in the algorithm are thinking about the wall layer in which a lesion is found. So is it in the deep mucosa, submucosa, or muscularis propria? Most of the time, and it's not always, but most of the time, the really concerning actors are going to be in the muscularis propria. And so when you're looking at lesions, if they're uh, bright and superficial, that's not something to worry about. If they're anechoic and superficial, like a cyst, that's not much to worry about. But if it's hypoechoic and in the muscularis propria, now you're getting into territories of more complicated neuroendocrine tumors or GI stromal tumors. And those are the ones where you'll think about treatment. And so then further down our algorithm, we break it down into the types of resections that are feasible. And there is some evidence now to suggest some lesions, such as lesions that are in the muscularis propria in the esophagus or around the GE junction, do uh, comparable with surgical resection or uh, a submucosal tunnel endoscopic resection. This is similar to, let's say, a POEM procedure where you slice down into the submucosa, work your scope down the plane of the submucosa till you get to the tumor, and then attempt a resection. And this is feasible for some of those types of lesions, like a small gist, let's say, right around the, the cardia of the stomach um, can be resected that way. Other areas where we talk in the algorithm about treatment have to do with gastric neuroendocrine tumors, and just in other locations, or let's say larger 
rectal nets. And I would encourage the listeners to refer back to the algorithm because it, it really is very visual, probably hard to convey yes, adequately on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Part of this reason was to actually draw people's attention to that because it's like spans a little more than a couple of pages and it's actually puts everything into very nice perspective. And for the readers, there's a very VLQECR are not really like, uh, they're basically, you know, acronyms for very low quality evidence, conditional recommendations, and so on and so forth. So what specific EUS findings of a subepithelial lesion should raise suspicion for a malignancy? Because that's really what we are very worried about. Even in, you know, GISTs versus, you know, NETs, we want to make sure that we are not at least missing out on these patients. Overcalling is an awful thing, but, you know, you don't want to be undercalling a malignancy. Yes, and, and that's a great point. I think the first thing is to think about where the lesion is, because if it's a GI stromal tumor and it's in the stomach, it's less likely when it's small to become problematic later on versus a GI stromal tumor elsewhere in the GI tract. So somewhere in the duodenum, for example, uh, there there is a greater chance that these can behave in a malignant fashion. They can have higher mitotic rates and those are the ones that get resected at a smaller. So size is important, but also location. Other things on EUS, you'd think about irregular borders of the lesions, geostromal tumors with cystic spaces, uh, problematic. Certainly anything that is ulcerating suggests that it's aggressive. The good news is if it's already ulcerating, you may not even need to send for EUS. If it's truly ulcerating, you may get an answer just from the mucosal biopsy at that point. Thank you. These are very important points for our listeners and our readers. You briefly mentioned size as an important part. Is that the main factor when you decide whether to do an ESD versus an EMR of a particular lesion for our uh, listeners who may not be as familiar with this? So some of this may come down to just local expertise. So if there's a lesion that is small, such as a, a rectal neuroendocrine tumor, Certainly an EMR with like a, a band ligator is fine if it's uh, under a centimeter. You could also do ESD for small lesions. Once they get larger, then ESD versus surgical resection starts to be something to think about. The ESD is nice because you are more likely to get clean margins all around, to get an unblock resection with a, with a clean margin. So what you would think of as an R0 resection, there's nothing left compared to EMR, which may not be as effective. So you'd also think about not just size, but how bad would it be if you left something behind or if the patient had to come back for another procedure. There's ESD, the EMR, and then there's the STIR, the, the submucosal tunneling resection that we talked about earlier. Those are sort of the three things. And then the newest kit on the block is the full thickness resection using the full thickness resection device, which is an over the scope clip, but that you pull up the entire thickness of the GI wall into a cap uh, and then fire off so that you can cut above a, a metal clamp essentially that's left behind. So you're getting a full thickness resection of a small lesion with your endoscope. And I would say, given the lower quality of evidence that drove many of our recommendations, this entire area is very ripe for other research. So for your listeners who are thinking about what research projects they might pursue, this entire area, particularly comparisons, head-to-head -head comparisons for resection 
of these different types of lesions would be a great area to study because we really do need more, more literature, more published studies to tell us which truly is the best way to proceed. Thank you. And it seems like there's a lot of synergy here between surgical teams, endoscopic teams, uh, as well as what the patient and local resources are. So would you suggest many of these would lend themselves to a multidisciplinary clinic or a multidisciplinary discussion? And how soon would you involve the surgical colleagues? Absolutely. I just adore our surgical colleagues where I practice at, at Mass General Hospital. Anytime you can involve a thoughtful surgeon in the process, I think it's helpful not only because they may have uh, an interest in doing something surgical for something larger, but because if you're going to attempt uh, an endoscopic resection, and let's not kid ourselves, uh, short of the, the handful of endoscopists who are truly experts at this, things like ESD or STIR, these are not for the faint of heart. The complication rates are at least 5%, sometimes 10% in some of these series. And so having a surgeon who's already met the patient, should something go wrong? Should there be a perforation that the patient needs to be admitted, that you want surgeons aware? It's always good to have the surgeons aware of these cases before you undergo some of these types of resections. Thank you so much, Dr. Jacobson, and thank you all on behalf of the Red Journal for listening to us in this podcast. Keep tuned up every month. We'll have more podcasts for you. And thank you all for listening again. And thank you for having me. This was wonderful. 